All right, if you would, go ahead and turn with me back over to Ephesians. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 3. Um, and, uh, yeah, you guys can, can pass the plates now. That was that part of it, but yes. Um, so, yeah, so the sermon today is going to be from Ephesians chapter 3. So if you would, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. Um, and we're going to finish up Paul's digression here. Um, and... Ultimately, as we discussed a little bit last week, what Paul is doing here is taking a few moments. He's built a case throughout the first three books of, uh, excuse me, chapters um, of Ephesians about God's love, um, his, his grace and his salvation in chapter one, him rectifying Jew and Gentile together in chapter two. And as we begin in chapter three, he's taking a moment to explain his small part in this while all the time pointing to Christ. So I'd like to read Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 through 13 first. So if you would, stand with me in honor of the one who gave us this word. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. It reads, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to proclaim to the Gentiles the good news of the unfathomable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for all what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden, in God who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore I ask you not to lose heart in my afflictions on your behalf, which are your glory. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. Uh, we ask humbly that your spirit would enlighten your word for us today, that we would understand and learn from the teachings of Paul in this letter, that you inspired him to record for us the mystery of Christ and the beauty that is his reconciliation of people to himself, people to one another, removing the, the, the sin from nature one day as he redeems even the cosmos and creation. We glorify you for your redemptive plan and the wisdom that it reveals to us. I pray that you would remove any hindrances from me, um, any nerves, any distractions, and that I would simply be a mouthpiece of your word that the Spirit would apply to our hearts. In your holy name I pray. Amen. All right, you can be seated. So as Paul, um, as I mentioned before, has been working through several different aspects of his argument through the first couple of chapters, because you have to remember when, when Paul was writing this letter, he was making a continuation, a continual argument. He was looking forward to making a particular point to the church at Ephesus. Um, this letter is not just simply a, a group of random thoughts. It has a coherent argument. And in fact, sometimes the chapters and verse divisions keep us from remembering that this is just a letter that Paul wrote to a church to encourage them. And the reason I bring this up is because although I've had to split up these two portions of, of these 13 verses and the two sermons, this is one continuous thought. Verses 1 through 13 is, in fact, one continuous argument. Um, in fact, there are several places, and I'll point them out to you in today's text, where we in English put a period because there's so many thoughts in a run um, that we English doesn't like run-on sentences very much. So to translate it to help us understand, they actually put in a period in English so we would stop and take a second and uh, reformulate our thoughts to the next point of the argument. But Paul here is basically speaking in two to three long Greek sentences in these 13 verses. 
So if you'll bear with me, I want to incorporate all 13 of them, read them all together for us to refresh our memory. And then we'll continue on verses 8 through 13. Chapter 3 reads, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, if indeed you heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief, about which, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it was now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. But the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister, according to the gifts of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to proclaim to the Gentiles the good news of the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light for all what is the administration of the, of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the church, to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried in him, uh, excuse me, carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, you, I ask you not to lose heart in my afflictions on your behalf, which are your glory. And so what Paul is now going to do is he's going to bring us into a position where he has argued about the mystery of Christ, explain what that is, explain that he is a carrier, the one who has been chosen to reveal the mystery of Christ, explaining last week, if you recall, that the church uh, as a whole has been given this administration of grace and the explanation, we're responsible for the explanation to the world about what's going on. And now in our passage today, he's going to be completing this thought of the mystery of Christ um, and especially expounding on what that mystery is and how it impacts the readers of that time. And I'm going to tell you it absolutely impacts us today. The things that we're going to see here are immediately applicable as soon as we hear it. The, the, the beauty of this text um, of all scriptures is that it's impactful uh, and applicable throughout all time. This text, though, is providentially for a time of, of uh, trial and, and affliction that we're going through. Um, and Paul calls this body to look back to Christ, not to his afflictions. And so we're going to look through this and watch Paul build this case for us. So my first point, if you do have the sermon notes, is hidden in God. Verses 8 and 9, hidden in God. Verses 8 and 9 say, To me, the very least of all saints, the grace was given to proclaim the Gentiles the good news of the unfathomable, that word is so hard for me, so if I say it wrong today, I apologize unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light for all what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. So as we saw last week, Paul had, had given himself the bottom tier, the lowest rank, and he continues that thought here in verse 8 as he says, the very least of all saints. And in fact, in the original language, it doesn't say to me, it says I myself. I myself am the least among all the saints, the very least. Now, some have argued that this is simply a hyperbolic view of humility, and that he knows that he actually is very high, and he, he is, um, you know, the one who's taken this. But I, I don't think, as I demonstrated last week, I can argue today as well as we go through this, Paul is adamantly arguing his low position in the saints because of pre-Damascus Paul. So if we think about what happened on the Damascus Road, 
Paul was on his way to continue to murder Christians. They called them the way at that time, followers of the way. And so Paul is, understands, Paul sees his position before Christ. And the reason he continues to belabor the point that he is lowly, that he is the least of the saints, is because he wants us to understand that God can use anyone. He wants us to understand that someone who was, in fact, using God to persecute Christ, using the excuse of religion, of Jewish religion, and their practices and their, their established 613 laws that had to be followed, the same thing that Christ pushed back against in his time, he is using that to persecute Christ. And he understands his position with Christ, without Christ excuse me, is at the lowest level. And so he sees himself as nothing but Christ in him, and that he is the very least of all the saints. He knows this is by grace. Look at the verse 8, the next section. This grace was given to proclaim to the Gentiles the good news of the unfathomable riches of Christ. And as he's making this argument for the mystery of Christ that we're going to dig back into here in just a moment, remember, he is writing to a group of Gentile believers in a church in one of the largest pagan uh, intense areas of the culture of that day. He wants to make sure that they understand the gospel and that the gospel is them. It's a weighty task. If you guys remember last week, um, and again, this, this long reference, I'm trying to make sure we tie all this together. If you remember what last week, the weight of explaining to the Gentiles and holding the Jews accountable for the truth of the Messiah is that the Messiah did in fact come for both Jew and Gentile. The dividing wall, the partition of chapter 2, that we remember has been torn down. So he's bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. But then he says in an absolutely amazing phrase, of the unfathomable riches of Christ. Some translations, you may read it as unsearchable or boundless. But it's the boundless, unsearchable, I'm going to avoid unfathomable because I have a hard time saying it. So the unsearchable or boundless riches of Christ. Think about waters too deep to find the bottom. Think about shores that are never seen. Anybody ever been in the middle of the ocean where you're so far out you cannot, you can no longer see the edge? Or flying in a plane over a vast, like you just, you can no longer see it. You don't know where it stops going down. You don't know where it stops going out. That is the idea that Paul was trying to get across. It is depth too deep to plumb. We cannot know the reaches of the riches of Christ. And this is not something that is new to Scripture. Romans 11.33 says, The depths and riches, excuse me, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. That word keeps popping up. And so in Romans, Paul is talking about being uh, amazed at the riches and wisdom of Christ. In Job, Job talks about over and over again the unsearchable depth of God. Even someone who was having everything taken from him, because immediately after his family was taken, he begins to talk about the unsearchable ways of God in Job 5. And this, this idea of the unsearchable, unfathomable riches of Christ makes you wonder, well, what are those riches? Like, you can say someone's rich, but does that mean that 
God or Christ has a bunch of money. Well, he does own the, the, the cattle on a thousand hills. But that's not what this is talking about. The unsearchable riches of Christ is laid out for us in multiple places throughout Scripture. I'm going to give you three of them. I encourage you to look at others. But first, I want to show you his kindness, forbearance, and patience. So Romans 2, 4. You want to write that down. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. He picks up in the middle of a thought. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? So we know that we talk about his riches being kindness, forbearance, and patience. Praise God that he is rich in kindness and patience. But Ephesians, the very book that we're going through, speaks of him being rich in grace. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of transgressions according to the riches of his grace. And next week we'll tackle Ephesians chapter uh, 3 and continue it. But verse 16 reads, That he would give you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. So he's also rich in glory. So we see that the, the depths, as we continue to, to, to search through Scripture, we can see why Paul describes it as unsearchable. He continues to add more attributes of God and describe Christ with them. This idea of all these things that we're getting about the description of Christ by Paul is what God is described with over and over and over in the Old Testament, that Yahweh is described as being rich in glory, long-suffering. Did we not read in Psalm today? His long-suffering endures forever. His patience, his kindness, his grace. How much have we seen that evident through the life of Israel? His grace sustaining them. And so this idea of the riches of Christ being unsearchable and unknowable should impact us dramatically. Because if we don't understand the attributes of Christ, we're missing out on the beauty that we get the privilege of seeing as followers of him. In fact, John describes it this way. John chapter 21, verses 24 and 25. This is the last thing John writes in his gospel. This is the disciple who is bearing witness to these things and wrote these things, and we know that, that his witness is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written one after the other, I suppose even the world itself could not contain the books that could be written. The riches of Christ are not only the attributes of Yahweh applied to him, but it's this idea that even during the 33 years that Christ lived on earth, he accomplished so much that the world cannot contain the number of books to be written in that 33 years. And yet Christ our Lord is eternal. I'm trying to expand your view of Christ because it is beyond search. You could spend a countless lifetimes trying to learn all there is to know about Christ, and our finite minds could never do it. Do you think that is a mystery? Is that a reason why Paul calls this the mystery of Christ? Absolutely. Because it's beyond our comprehension. Again, I know I referenced it last week, but this is not a Sherlock Holmes type of mystery. This is something that has to be given to us and revealed to us by a holy, infinite God. And as he continues in verse 9, he continues with the thought, And to bring to light for all what is the administration of the mystery, 
which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. So there's that word administration again. If everyone recalls last week, he talked about stewardship. This week he's calling it administration. It's interchangeable words, interchangeable ideas. But Paul is saying that he has been given grace to do those two things, to proclaim the Gentiles the gospel and to bring to light the administration of the mystery of Christ. He has been given grace to do those two explicit things, specific things. And as we think about the administration of the mystery, we've, we've talked about the mystery quite a bit. We're going to talk about it more, so I don't want to stop there too long. But what I do want to hone your focus into is the end of verse 9 when it says, hidden in God who created all things. It's been hidden for ages in God who created all things. Paul is bringing back in here creation. Colossians 1.26 echoes, that is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but now has been manifested to his saints. God knew about what was going to happen in Christ. This mystery was established in God from all eternity past. And when we think about being established in God, and we know who God is, we begin to think about the Trinity. And that the Trinity had this covenant together amongst themselves to glorify God, the triune Godhead, and they each have a part to play in how the economy of this trinity is played out. Now, economy, when you think about it from a theological perspective, is not money. It's not the, the, the you know, we think about economy in America. We think about the, the giant Wall Street system, the, the big workhorse of what controls our dollar and all the spending. The economy of the trinity is, in fact, what we can tangibly see impacting the world because of what the trinity is doing. So when we talk about the economy of the Trinity, we get to see God's election of his people. Can we see God electing people? We know people are converted, right? So we know there has to be elect. And that's what God the Father does. He calls out from before the foundations of the world in Ephesians chapter 1, what is going to, or who is going to be saved. And then all of us, I think, would heartily say amen to the economy of the sun, or what we tangibly see the sun has done. We see it right here in Scripture. Did Christ not come to live and walk this earth in perfect obedience to the law and give himself on the cross, raise himself from the dead and ascend to the right hand of the Father? We can see that, right? We know what he did. He atoned for our sins. And then we think about the Spirit. The Holy Spirit applies salvation. He regenerates and indwells the believer. And so we know tangibly, can we or can we not know that the Spirit has impacted our lives as our desires begin to change, um, as we desire the things of God, as we desire His Word. So we know that this mystery is a triune commitment, a covenant that they worked together in, hidden in God from before creation. Paul brings back in creation here to help us understand that this is not something new. He's bringing in the idea that the cosmos was created with this mystery already in place. What does that tell us? Why is that impactful to you? Because Christ was not plan B. There's a lot of folks in the Christian evangelical, especially American evangelical world, that view Christ as a plan B. Well, 
He created Adam and he hoped he did what he was supposed to do, but then Adam failed, so Christ had to step in. Jesus Christ is not plan B. Jesus Christ is plan only. This agreement between the Trinity was laid down before creation. Paul brings this into view of creation so that we can understand the expansive nature of this mystery that has been hidden in him for generation upon generation. Before time began, this was in place. This mystery was in place. And then we get to think of the privilege that we have that after Christ ascended, the Spirit came forth and granted us a, a partial just glimpse into that mystery so we might have confidence in what he has done. But there's also the idea, because the word cosmos here, it, it, it not only means created um, all things, but it's, it's the idea of every single molecule in all of creation. The mystery of Christ is that he will reconcile, and I'm going to explain why I get this here in just a moment, because it's, it's all is one thought, but that Christ will also reconcile the universe to himself. Did you know that creation was tainted by sin? Look back in Genesis 3. Creation was, in fact, tainted and hindered by sin. But God stepped in through this mysterious wisdom that he has, that we're going to talk about, continue to talk about this morning, to reconcile not only Jew and Gentile together, but creation as well. Now, why should this impact us so much? Josh, you've, you've given us a high view of what Christ did, but why? So what? I want us to understand the grandeur of our Savior so that it provokes us to unashamed, unrestrained, unbridled worship and praise of him. I would argue that we cannot view sin as it's appropriately meant to be viewed without a high view of Christ. I would argue that we will not change our lives in renewal if we do not understand the magnitude of our Savior. The church will not unite together unless they unite around a Savior that is beyond comprehension. And that's what I want you to apply from this first point. We are his bride. We have this amazing picture of the mystery and unfathomable, unsearchable riches of Christ as evidenced in the work of him in his church. And we'll see this more in a moment. But by God's grace and to his own glory alone, we are his bride. That is our bridegroom, folks. That is who we are promised to for all eternity, is this unsearchable Christ. And we have the inestimable privilege of being partakers of this gift by the grace of God, by being united in him. Praise him. That's the application from point one. Praise him. If there's nothing that tells you to praise Christ more than understanding the mystery and the unsearchable depths of who he is in his grace... I don't know what to, to, to display for you. Okay, let's move on to point number two, purpose of God, verses 10 and 11. Verse 10 reads, so that the manifold wisdom of God might know, 
might now, excuse me, be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So now as we move on, we get to see that this has all been done. So Paul was given grace in verse 8 to do two things, to give the gospel to the Gentiles and to administer the mystery of Christ. So that, so in verse 10, so we know these things happened because of this, so that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. So let's get a couple things clear here before we get the impact of what this is actually saying. In verse 10, the word manifold is varying, many, a large number. And believe it or not, this word in the Greek is not used anywhere outside the Bible. Paul made up another word. He's trying to impact the readers to understand that God's wisdom is beyond count, it's beyond measure. This isn't the idea of wisdom as, as personified in, in Proverbs. This is the idea of God being beyond, his wisdom being so far beyond anything that we can comprehend. It's not used anywhere else in the New Testament even, this word manifold. He's trying to get across the amazing wisdom of God that it would take to bring about the redemption that he has displayed in the mystery of Christ. That takes an all-wise and all-powerful God. And some of the wisdom is displayed in him revealing these things to us in Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Christ himself is described as this wisdom. And earlier in Ephesians chapter 2, if you recall from, from back at that time a few weeks ago, that he mentions the wisdom again. Chapter 2, verse 6, And raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God. And if you recall, Romans 11.33 even talks about the riches, the depth of the riches and wisdom of God. It is very evident in Scripture, in Paul's writings especially, that he is absolutely mind-blown by the wisdom of God. His, his mind cannot take it. Even as the one who has revealed the mystery of Christ, he cannot fully understand the wisdom of God that brought about the redemption of his people. Unless we, we think that well, I think I've got a good handle on this. Please understand that the wisdom of God brought about a creation that he knew and decreed would fall, who then promised a redeemer, who through secondary causes and primary causes had occurred the exact time of every event recorded in the Old Testament in human history to bring about Christ himself coming to the perfect lineage to fulfill, fulfill over 700 prophecies of the Old Testament in the few years that he was on this earth. To then take his own wrath upon his son, to pour that out upon his son so that they would, we would not only be redeemed, but given the righteousness of that son so that we would be, from a judicial standpoint, actually righteous before God and counted as righteous while still protecting his own justice. 
my mind is blown just trying to explain it, let alone planning it. Right? I have a hard time planning a birthday party. The wisdom of God is beyond comprehension. Everybody fair with that? Everybody comprehended that so far? Okay. And then, as if coming to this point, we can go, we are not already going, okay, I get it, I get it, Josh. Wisdom of God is beyond comprehension. Now he takes it a step further and continues in the verse that God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Did you know that God's church is used to teach spiritual beings, both demon and angels, what God's grace is actually like? That's literally what it's saying. We, as being combined in Jew and Gentile, God tearing down the partition between two of the most hated groups of that time, him reconciling that to himself, reconciling creation to himself, the work of Christ established in his church, that means us, has been done to display the wisdom and grace of God to the spiritual realm. Talk about the wisdom that is unsearchable and the mystery that's unfathomable. That God would take people who have rebelled against him from the moment they were created, redeem them to himself, unite them in his own body, and then use them to glorify himself in such a way that the world, not only the world sees it, but the actual spiritual realm gets to revel in the glory and wisdom of God by his grace being on display in us. In us. That is beyond, I just, I can't even fathom. It, 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 it's beyond words. And made known here, lest you think that it's our responsibility to teach these demons a lesson or wherever you might take your thought process there. The words made known here in verse 10 is actually in the passive voice. God makes it known. We don't, that, he just makes it known by working in us. It's a passive verb. So God uses us to display himself not only to the world, but to the spiritual plane as well. I was trying to think of a good way to illustrate this, and, and what, I, what I thought of is we can see the church working, but until we have an understanding of what God is doing in the church by his revelation, we don't truly understand how it works. Does that make sense? So if you think about a microscope, if you look through a microscope at a, a drop of, of um, water from a, you know, from a rain last night, you'll see on a cellular level all these things going on. Like it's not still, right? You see all the different amoebas and bacteria and all the things that are small, and you just see all this stuff working. But unless you have uh, um, a very good understanding of microbiology, you have no idea what's going on in there. You see stuff moving, you, like you get it, like there's, I understand on a, on a conscious level there's things going on that I can't see here. And this microscope gives me a glimpse, but I don't really have an understanding. Think of that as, as God revealing to the spiritual world. The spiritual world saw what was going on, right? They could see Christ the, through history. The spiritual world could see this. They saw Christ walk the earth. But God chose to use his microscope or the church to reveal his wisdom and grace to even the spiritual plane. So that they could understand that. And that's a hard thing to wrestle with because a lot of us, because of false teaching and, and 
what happens in the spiritual realm and, and things like that, a lot of us give too much power to those who are angels or demons, to the spiritual plane. God only, they only know what God chooses for them to know. And we have the privilege of being the beings that God has and desires and redeems to himself by his grace. And he uses us to teach them that. And as we continue through verse 11, this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. So again, the eternality here is once again coming forth because this a purpose has now been doubly indicated. Excuse me. The eternal purpose has now been doubly indicated by Paul. And in biblical writing, to emphasize, you don't say it's very good. In the Greek, you say something more than once. So it's God is holy, 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 which is the, the, the highest level of, of repetition to describe God. So here Paul is making a point to make sure we understand that this is the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now as you think through these two verses, you may be going, well, that's, that's pretty amazing, but how does that impact me? How does it impact my daily life? Do you understand here, we have to understand, I hope it has impacted you, that God redeems his church unto himself to reveal to all of creation his glory and wisdom and grace. And that should cause us to look to him, to glorify him, to strive for the holiness that he displays, to look to him as the all-sufficient creator, the one who sustains us, the one who plans this. And I should, I should add on here, guys, this should give you hope and rest that everything up to this point has occurred because of God's perfect wisdom. Think about that. Everything in your life has occurred because of God's perfect wisdom. If we, if, there's no better display to trust God with than seeing his plan of redemption, the mystery of Christ, Christ revealed in Scripture. Because the minuscule things of our lives suddenly pale in comparison, and we're like, okay, God can handle the flat tire. God can handle the, the job that I, I got laid off from suddenly. God can handle the cancer that my parents have now, whatever the case may be. We can trust the manifold wisdom of God because he has already put on display how powerful and gracious and righteous and just and perfect it is. So let us rest in that. My final point this morning, access to God. Access to God, verses 12 through 13. I wrestled with this verse a lot this week, verse 12, especially the last portion of verse 12. I was reaching out to Greek scholars, other pastors. And I'm going to give you a couple different ideas here, and then I'm going to tell you where I fall on this and why. So let me read it to you first. In whom? Verse 12, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my afflictions on your behalf, which are your glory. Now, of course, a proper, to properly study the Bible, if you begin in a verse that starts with a phrase like in whom, we have to know who the whom is. 
So if you look back at verse 11, we know it's Christ Jesus, our Lord. So in Christ, we have boldness and confident access. Boldness and confident access. These two words uh, form one in the original language as a figure of speech known as a hindiatus. It's a hindiatus, which basically means we can freely, frankly, openly, and candidly approach God because of Christ. Freely, frankly, openly, and candidly approach God in Christ. Paul is making a very specific point. And here's where the debate comes in. So bear with me here because I want to explain this, and this may seem out of bounds or, or higher level than what you would normally hear from something like this, but I want to share with you the importance of understanding what Scripture is saying. So in the last part of this verse, it says, in most translations, through faith in Him. However, that phrase in the original language can be translated through the faith of Him. And being Christ. It's a difference between an objective genitive and a subjective genitive. Don't write that down. But what it does is it makes a difference of who the faith is in or who is the one displaying the faith. Does that make sense? And through a lot of research this week, you can ask Amanda, I spent hours on this. I even reached out to James White, if anybody knows who that is on Twitter, trying to get an answer to this. He's one of the number one Greek theologians today, Greek scholars. And up until the last 60 to 70 years, maybe 100 at most, the majority text read of him, the faithfulness of him, the faithfulness of Christ. And I want to present to you and I want to argue to you that that is a deeper and richer and more meaningful understanding of the text. Because Christ had to be faithful to the covenant that he had committed to. The faithfulness of Christ to what he had committed to before creation had to be fulfilled. Christ, throughout his entire life, through the recording of the Gospels, did he or did he not submit himself to the will of the Father? His faithfulness to God is our ability to put our faith in him. Now, please don't under, misunderstand me. We still are converted by faith in Christ, but we are convert, converted by faith in his faithfulness. Do you understand? The faithfulness of Christ to complete the covenant impacts us. We have boldness. So what Paul is saying is that in Christ, so our faith is still there in him. So I'm not taking that away. But in him, in our faith in Christ, we have boldness and confident access through the faith of Christ. That is a beautiful picture of what Christ has done. That he is faithful to complete what he covenanted to complete in the Trinity. And that's why I went into that definition and that understanding earlier of the Trinity and creation and hidden in God is because this covenant relationship is played out perfectly in the life of Christ. And Paul is saying that here. We base our boldness to come before God because Christ was faithful to what he set out to do. Remember the Garden of Gethsemane. He was faithful. He chose to be faithful. Oh my God, if this cup can pass from me, please let it. And yet he was faithful for us. He was faithful to the covenant and we get to reap and benefit from his faithfulness. 
We get to approach the throne of God in boldness and confidence because of Christ. We are freely, frankly, openly, and candidly able to walk into the throne room of a holy God as sinful creatures because of one man's faithfulness. That is a deeper reality than simply saying our faith in him. And again, please understand we we are saved by faith in Christ. I'm not saying that, but it's our faith in his faithfulness. And that's why these, these, these deep dives into scripture are so important to us because it truly does change and deepen our understanding and praise and, and adoration of our Savior. All right. I was so excited about that. I can't tell you guys how like impactful that was to me this week. Let's look at verse 13 as well. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my afflictions on your behalf, which are your glory. So Paul has made this argument. He's, he's positioned himself with a bracketed. He starts with talking about being a prisoner. He comes to verse 13 and says, don't lose heart at my afflictions. And so now we know the entire argument that he has made has been to bolster the faith of these Gentiles. And I pray that your faith through these last two weeks has been bolstered on what Paul has said here in these 13 verses. Now, I promised you earlier in my opening, in my introduction, that there would be a a very applicable point that we could take out as if having a bigger view of Christ is not sufficient for that. I want to give you one more. Don't lose heart at the afflictions that come at you. Paul's point in doing this is he was in a Roman prison for preaching the very thing that he is telling them about in this book. Ultimately, he was put in prison because he took an Ephesian Gentile, understand, an Ephesian Gentile into the temple. There's debate on whether he actually did because it's not, it's not really displayed and laid out in Scripture enough to whether he did or did not. But he is in prison for being accused for doing just that. And in that time and day, that culture, being put in prison for that kind of a message would cause people to doubt the message, um, the, the, the message's um, um, substance, whether it was true or not. And so Paul is laying this argument out, and he's saying, in this digression, he's going through this argument to get them to have confidence in the message that he has shared with them for a few years prior to that when he was there establishing the church in the first place. Now, we can apply that principle to ourselves. So, dear saint, dear believer, look through these last 13 verses. Look through your notes these last two weeks and let that sink into your mind that we not lose heart at our afflictions. That we not lose heart at our country's afflictions. That we not lose heart at our family's afflictions. That is a dramatic dramatically important point of these 13 verses, Paul's overarching argument, all of this is to bring to light, to this, the, the um, scaffolding that is supporting the, 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 the main idea of I'm in prison, but don't lose heart because of it. 
I may be afflicted, but don't lose heart because of it, because you are Christ. There is the mystery revealed. I was chosen to do this by God. And he goes through all these arguments that we just went through. And I want each of us sitting here to go, okay, all of these arguments that we just went through, the wisdom of God, everything here is for one purpose, to establish our faith. That we can stand and not lose heart in the afflictions that surround us. Does anyone in here, although may not be as afflicted as other places, but does anyone in here feel affliction from time to time, maybe even this week? I would encourage you to write this verse down somewhere on a card, put it where you see it often, so that when you're having that bad day, come back and read these first 13 verses. And know that our affliction should not cause us to lose heart. For we are established in our glorious Savior the unsearchable riches of Christ are ours, even though we are Gentiles and we're outside of the promise of, Abraham, of uh, Mo- Moses. Excuse me. Even though we weren't circumcised, as verse or chapter two talks about, that's Paul's argument. Do you see him making this argument through the chapter or through the book now, through the letter? He's brought us to a point to tell us, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. God is all wise. Do you see what he's done? Do you see what he's planned? We're fellow heirs now. He's teaching the actual spiritual beings through the body of believers, the church. That's how wise God is. He has this. He's got this. So that's what I want us to leave here today with. This idea of resting in the mystery of Christ. I'm sure no one has ever told you in your life, to rest in a mystery. Mysteries cause us to be anxious, do they not? When we don't understand something, when something seems confusing, when there's a Sherlock Holmes, I know I keep referencing Sherlock Holmes because I love Sherlock Holmes, but when we think of mysteries that need to be solved, it doesn't cause us to calm down, does it? But what I'm telling you is be calm in the mystery of Christ. Lock onto that, rest in that, rest in Christ because of what he has done. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you now in gracious adoration for the revelation of the mystery that you have provided for us. Not only have you redeemed us to, our, to yourself, not only have, have you used us to display your wisdom and holiness and grace to even the spiritual realm, Lord, you have established us firmly in Christ. Let us not lose heart in that, in our afflictions. Let us... Let our hearts be strapped to the cross so that nothing can distract us from that. We glorify you and praise you. We pray for those, again, who are ill and not with us as we miss them. I pray that you bring them back to us one day. May my prayer.